3: Good news, everyone. We have a new episode. Oh, well, there's that too. But I was reminding everyone that we're on Patreon now. That's right. So now
2: you can go to Patreon and help keep Big Picture Science going and get a little
3: something in return. That's right. For only two bucks a month, you'll be able to chime in on episode topics by way of exclusive Patreon polls for just a couple of bucks a month.
2: And if you up that to $5 a month, you'll get access to exclusive bonus material like extended. extended interviews, updates to past episodes, or Seth's random musings. Is there any other kind for him?
3: (laughs) I don't know about that, but they're only random in this universe. (laughs) Exactly. Go to
2: patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and sign up now, please. And at the
3: right level, you can even meet Seth. Some reward that is. You can give any amount and know you're helping keep the mics on and the science radio flowing. Again, it's patreon.com slash bigpictureofscience, and thanks. Thanks. I'm a big fan of science fiction, particularly that which involves aliens, you know, otherworldly creatures usually intent upon invading Earth.
4: Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society.
3: We certainly identify with the theme of invasion these days, as we contend with our own viral invader, one that moves stealthily across geographic borders and silently into its hosts other invasions have made the news too.
5: This giant insect, nicknamed the murder hornet, their stings can deliver nearly seven times the amount of venom as a honeybee, strong enough to kill.
3: Is there anything that 2020 won't throw at us? Well, don't answer that. It's a lot to contend with, but the subject of invasions is an important one. After all, they have the potential to reshape the world. So we're going to look at them, but with an approach that questions our assumptions. What impels biology to move to new territory? Why are organisms here rather than there? Does a menace always arrive with no warning? I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, we draw on classic science fiction to discuss the nature of invasions and look at some incursions that are happening now. If we understand what prompts biology to be on the move, does that help us forestall its unwelcome arrival? This episode, Home Invasions.
3: We begin by doing a little scene setting, and I ask you to cast your mind back to BC, that is, before Corona. As February was winding down, the CDC made an announcement that defined a new reality. The novel coronavirus had gained ground. It was moving quickly across the globe. It was time for Americans to prepare themselves. I
1: understand this whole situation may seem overwhelming and that disruption to everyday life
2: may be severe. But these are things that people need to start thinking about now. From there, the news evolved rapidly. We adjusted our routines accordingly. Those who could began sheltering at home. The theater department at Reed College in Washington State had a unique challenge. They'd been rehearsing a play for weeks and they couldn't perform it in the theater now, but they wanted the show, or a show, to go on.
5: We realized we were gonna be all over the country, different time zones, different cities, How do we continue to make something together? We decided that we could make a radio play.
6: I remember we had a conversation about what our audience needed in this really scary and confusing time, and we talked about something that would be entertaining, but also we talked about different feelings that we were missing, and one of them was a feeling of nostalgia.
4: The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The
5: play is about an invasion by Martians of Earth. And then what happens next? How do humans survive and carry on in, in the face of this?
4: We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us.
6: You know, even outside of the invasion part of it, just the moment of panic that was across the world was something that we all shared. We all felt really confused and scared and weren't sure what was happening this was a play that was about people getting through that and surviving. My name is Eva Licht and I'm a senior at Reed College.
5: My name is Peter Cassander. I'm an associate professor at Reed College in the Department of Theater. I was the producer for our spring 2020 production of War of the Worlds.
6: My role in War of the Worlds was as a producer and co-director, and I had a couple of small roles.
3: In times of crisis, Reed College Theater chose to produce one of the quintessential sci-fi disaster stories, an invasion not by microbes, but by Martians.
2: And the suspense of this 1938 radio play, Seth, was really underscored by that deep baritone and gravitas of Orson Welles.
3: Right, based on the novel that H.G. Wells had written at the end of the 19th century. And as an aside, I note that H.G. is uh, the chemical symbol for mercury. And in 1938, this play was produced by Orson Welles' Mercury Theater of the Air.
4: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra.
5: The piece begins and there's an announcer um, broadcasting music live from one of the dance halls in New York City.
4: The touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campesita.
5: And suddenly the announcer then kind of breaks
4: back in. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas... lets disk- us know
5: that, that explosions have been seen through telescopes on Mars and they're, and they're going to get an expert's opinion. And then it kind of goes back to music again. And that's kind
3: of how this thing gets underway. And, Molly, you know, it's worth noting that the idea of a Martian invasion drama unfolding as it is here would have been very compelling to the ears of an audience in 1938. I mean, the Japanese had just invaded Manchuria, and the Germans were about to invade Poland. So the world was jumpy. Very much so.
2: Due
4: to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event.
5: They cut back into the music and, oh, now we're in New Jersey with the professor who will tell us, the astronomer who will tell us what they've witnessed.
4: Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disc. You're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And they're like, oh, it's no problem. Nothing to worry
5: about. And then we get another report that says, oh, something's fallen in a field. It is reported
4: that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder, it has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? Professor Pearson. Uh, What would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of...
3: You know, Molly, this is the thing that I so love about sci-fi invasion dramas. They begin softly. Invasions are always kind of unprovoked and unexpected. Something lands and we poke at it, not really knowing what it is.
2: Well, the story is timeless, but the technology used to perform this version of War of the Worlds was decidedly modern. Peter, Eva, and the others took their radio play to the platform where we all had migrated at that point in the year, Zoom. 1938, meet 2020.
6: Well, I think there were about eight of us in total, eight or nine. I mean, we were all around the country. I was in Colorado. I was in my childhood bedroom with my dog next to me.
2: And so we pick up where our story left off. Reporter Carl Phillips, now played by Reed College student Chris Wolfe, is studying this strange object in this scene of Reed College Theater's Zoom production, War of the Worlds. Listeners, you've just heard Mr. Wilmeth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere. Police are trying to rope off the roadway leading to the farm. But it's no
3: use. They're breaking right through. So, their live Zoom play, it's going great. But then, Molly, they had planned on using a Zoom function to visually cue the cast members while the audience looked at an old-fashioned title card. But as many of us have, they discovered that the Zoom interface worked differently than they thought. We discovered
5: the audience can see us. In fact, we got text messages saying, "Uh, we can see you. And so we suddenly doused all our cameras, turned all our cameras off, and performed the thing blind.
6: But also, it, you know, that made it more live. I think it made it more like the theater we were used to.
3: Okay, the show's back to the increasingly ominous scene unfolding on the New Jersey farm. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in,
2: in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll move the microphone nearer.
5: And so as as the information changes as our understanding changes reminds me of, of where we are with the pandemic. There's
6: constantly being research done about COVID-19 and so the information is changing and then the information that's available is changing and the way we're getting information is changing and you know when we were rehearsing in in March and April we didn't really know the timeline of this and I think that's similar to the what the characters were going through in the stories. They didn't know if this cylindrical object was... They, some, I think it, uh, they were like, oh, maybe it's a meteor. And the, no, no, it's not a meteor. And, you know, that's the same thing I think that a lot of people were experiencing was we don't really know what is going to happen. We don't know the timeline of what's going to happen with the pandemic.
3: When they listened to the Orson Welles 1938 production, they were also struck by the contrast with today. Let's uh, tune back in to the original.
4: We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey.
5: Listening to it again uh, as we were approaching this project, really interesting to think about how information was conveyed differently then than it is
4: now. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off.
5: The moment of the cylindrical object opening up in New Jersey is is the moment where the thing sort of changes. It stops being an unknown and
4: starts to being a threat. top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. Move it, move, it, move it!
5: Information just on the radio is very different than getting your information from the internet or broadcast television. It happens sequentially. You can't go back, right? You, can, you, can't, you can't rewind on live radio.
4: Wait a minute. Something I can see turning out of that black hole through l- luminous disks are the eyes, it might be a face. Might be almost of heavens. Something hey wriggling back. out of the shadow like a gray snake. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. It eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent in the mouth. So
5: the original event broadcast live and thinking about it as a live event, just someone's tuning in and they might have missed the introduction and there's this confusion and it it, it may be the history seems to be, best as I can tell, over overwrought a little bit that, that it actually caused panic in New Jersey. But a little of that must have happened, may have happened. And, and that's always been fascinating to me
3: about it. Peter's right that those stories have been exaggerated. Sure, the radio play frightened some people. They called the local police departments. But it didn't ignite the widespread panic, as is the lore.
5: If we had taken it out of its time, say, made it about 2020, I think the delivery method would need to be different to get at the same kind of suspense. That we would need to be having text alerts arriving on people's phones. We would have to have viral YouTube clips appearing um, from a farm field in New Jersey.
6: We did make some changes. The entire cast was originally male and that was not what our cast was. So we made some subtle changes to make sure that Professor Pearson was not played by a man.
3: As I set down these
0: notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living human on earth. I have been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world.
5: These last few scenes, as things break down in the in the first half, are really showing that, that there's no communication left, that there's no way to connect between people anymore. And, and so everything has shrunk down to just what one individual can see. Well, I think we were all wrestling with that, the nine of us making this thing together. And the sort of dramatic structure that um, Wells has put into place in the script is really beautifully done. And then the second half, the narrative style shifts, the narrative shifts, and it seems to be Professor Pearson wandering through a post-apocalyptic New Jersey headed for the tunnel, trying to get into New York City.
6: We get to see Pearson walking through New York City and seeing that the entire city is shut down and black smoke that the Martians release, and it seems the Martians have taken over. I mean, they kill a lot of people.
0: I reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses.
6: And we hear the bells ringing at one point. And so it seems like there is no hope and that there may not be any people left.
2: But despite the ominous ring, this story is not, in fact, without hope.
6: The play ends with kind of a reflection on what happened from Pearson in the future. I think they describe children running, and we get to hear that society has rebuilt itself after this catastrophe, and that the Martians were defeated, and that people were able to come back together. So it is a very hopeful
5: ending. One of the things that was really exciting to us about the hopeful ending is that the Martians are ultimately defeated by Earth microbes. The common cold takes down the aliens, and... That was sort of a lovely reversal of the situation we found ourselves in.
4: Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, his wisdom, has put upon
3: this earth which is perhaps the most compelling reason that the members of Reed College Theater produced a play about an alien invasion while the novel coronavirus began disrupting lives around the globe. The glimmer of hope at the end, the resilience, the determination of people and society to go on.
2: Thanks so much to the members of Reed College Theater Department. Eva Licht, who is a senior at the college, and Peter Cassander, an associate professor at Reed College's Department of Theater. Plus, you heard the voices of Chris Wolfe, who played the reporter Carl Phillips, and Serafina Martinez-Ridgley, who played Professor Pearson. Science fiction often shapes how we think about an invasion. It happens without warning when we're besieged by aliens with malicious intent. But is that the full story of invasions? Invasions from the perspective of the invader. Next.
7: We are the ones, the only ones in a position as far as I know of, to add these values to a species, right? To say this one's invasive, this one's
3: beneficial. It's Home Invasions on Big Picture Science. Hey, again, just another quick word mid-invasion about joining us on Patreon. Getting through this global pandemic,
2: not to mention marauding Martians, means everyone needs to help each other out.
3: We're guessing you find big picture science useful in understanding the world better, and now we're asking you to help us. For just a couple bucks a month, you can do exactly that. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and choose a category. You can be a protozoan, a velociraptor, or even a space explorer. Can you be a Martian? Uh, You're going to have to move for that job.
2: For $5 a month, you can be a tardigrade, and that gets you exclusive bonus material.
3: And if you become a velociraptor, well, you get the bonus material and thanks in the credits of the podcast.
2: You're encouraging people to become velociraptors? We're trying to deal with these Martians.
3: Yeah, well, all right, but the velociraptors at least make great pets.
2: Patreon.com slash Science, and thank you for your help.
8: Thank you. I'm Jane Perlez
3: While we shelter in place in our effort to gain control of a virus, other life forms are pouring in to empty public spaces.
5: Wild boars are roaming the streets in Israel. Family packs have been invading cities as they root through garbage. Their visitation since nationwide lockdowns
3: came into effect this month is resurging. We've also heard of goats munching on flowers in Welsh windowsills and larger than usual flocks of flamingos on the shores of the Adriatic. Are these invasions, irritations, or just some uninvited but mostly harmless house guests?
2: It depends on whom you ask. In many places, wild boars can be aggressive. And this was a surprise when we learned it. Flamingos have been considered an invasive species in Florida for the last century. Maybe those munching goats are a menace, but some people introduce goats as an effective way to control invasive plants. But one animal's sudden appearance in the Pacific Northwest has made quite an impression.
7: It's a flying, stinging insect, a true behemoth among the insect world, moving across the landscape, searching out food to haul back and feed to its hungry grubs.
2: It sounds like any multitasking parent trying to feed its family. The insect is called the Asian giant hornet, although you may know it by its nickname, murder hornet.
1: Tonight, killer hornets invading the U.S. and Canada. Asian giant hornets, also known as murder hornets, spotted in Washington state, and they
0: prey on honeybees that pollinate much of our food.
3: They're the world's largest hornet. The queens can be two inches in length. No less intimidating are their faces. Large, black, almond-shaped eyes, glistening mandibles protrude from the bottom of their large, orange hornet heads.
2: Call Central Casting Murder Hornet because they have a part for you, the role of Martian in War of the Worlds.
4: Eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is is kind of v shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips and seem to quiver and pulsate.
3: Okay, maybe the murder hornets don't drool, but otherwise they conform to our image of an invader. Have they too come here to wreak havoc and destruction?
7: So no, these are not hornets dead set on murdering or invading or doing anything other than what hornets would normally do. I'm Chris Looney, an entomologist with the Washington State Department of Agriculture, where I manage our general entomology laboratory. From the hornets' perspective, they're doing what any other species on earth would do, including our own. They're just going to a place and sort of executing their biological mandate, if you will, right?
2: Beekeepers are worried, and as Dr. Looney explains, he and other entomologists are trying to control the spread of this new arrival.
7: They probably came on cargo, like almost every other introduced species on Earth that gets transported anywhere. And the amount of cargo between the United States and, or North America and Asia is immense. So it's just a, a byproduct of how much we move ourselves and our stuff.
3: They are called murder hornets, and, uh, well, that has something to do with uh, what they do. Maybe you could describe why they earned this uh, somewhat somber moniker. Yeah, you know, actually, the origins of that nickname are, are shrouded in you know cross-cultural
7: mystery. That name was given to Mike Baker, a reporter for the New York Times, when he was talking to a Japanese entomologist who said, oh, yeah, we call him the murder hornet as a nickname, uh, and that seems to actually have come from Japanese TV And honestly, when I read those dialogues, it seems like they're talking about how horrible it is to be stung by this as a human being. But everybody, I think, rightfully assumes or or wonders if it isn't applied to it because of what it does in nature, too, which is kill lots and lots of insects. They are predators um, and they have this sort of unique behavior where they will collaboratively attack a beehive. They can eliminate all, you know, like 40,000 bees in an hour and a half, thus rendering the hive defenseless and, and easy pickings for the, uh, the larvae and pupae that are still in
3: there. And I, I think a lot of people think that's the murdering aspect of it. And it's, it's not. It's just really effective hunting. Do they sting these bees? or I mean, I'm, t- I'm told that they do something that's more, more like what happened in the French Revolution. Sure, well, so there are a couple of
7: different ways they interact with the bees. Early in their interactions, early in the season, they actually catch individual bees, they bite off the head and the abdomen and chew off the wings and stuff, the the things that really aren't that useful to the hornets. They masticate what's left into kind of a ball and they take that back and feed it to their larvae. And that is a parallel for their normal hunting, what they would do with any other insect. When they do this collaborative hive attack, they dispense with returning the bees and they just basically cut their heads off with their mandibles, Throw them to the ground, move on to the next one, and do that until the hive can no longer mount any kind of defense at all. Yeah, so they're, they guillotine the poor things.
3: So in this case, it's not decapitating the bees because it wants to eat them. Uh, it's just guillotining them to get them out of the way, so it can get to the uh, so they can get to the larvae, right, which is the the real point of the exercise.
7: Yeah, that seems to be the case. Um, they just want to go for the larvae and pupae, kind of like delicious, fat, protein-rich. Immobile meals waiting waiting to be plucked from their cells.
3: And I can't help but ask, what if one of these guys stung me? Uh, how, how bad would that be?
7: It's bad. The So from people that have been stung by this, this uh, I've heard it described as hot nails being driven into your skin or being smacked with a 2x4 as hard as possible. Their venom actually can be kind of cytolytic, so if you got a good dose, you might end up with a little weeping hole right where you were stung. It's it's pretty horrible. If you get stung lots and lots of times, and this isn't unique to the Asian giant hornet, this could happen with any kind of sting a hymenoptera. If you got too many stings, but if you get stung a lot, you can even have some heart and liver damage. So it's it's no joke. People people die. People die uh, rarely, you, you know initially, when we were doing our research on this, we were seeing figures like fifty people a die a year in Japan from this hornet. That seems to be an exaggeration. there certainly have been times in the past when over 50 people have died from all stinging hymenoptera in japan but the current mortality is much closer to like 15 to 20 and certainly most of those are anaphylactic shock but there are there are events in 2013 there was a, a hornet year in china and in one province i think like 100 people died from mass stinging events
3: I got to say, I have a difficult time envisioning what it feels like to have a hot nail driven into my flesh because my experience in that regard is, is, shall we say, limited. But I, I ask you, Chris, have you ever been stung by one of these guys? No, and I have zero interest in being stung
7: by one. We actually bought these these kind of special hornet suits to wear when we're working with the nests, which we haven't even found one yet. I mean, we're still in the baby stages of this. But it's, it's thicker and comprises multiple layers of mesh. And the idea is it both keeps the stinger away from you and locks it up. And I will be wearing that every time I think I'm going to get stung. Uh,
3: I see. But, I, but I'm told it's not generally interested in humans. It's, they're, they're unlikely to come at you. This is correct. Um,
7: I mean, and that's one of the unfortunate aspects of, of this nickname that we've uh, bestowed upon it. They, like yellow jackets, uh, which we all have common experience with, sting when they think their nest is being threatened. If you get it pinched like between your skin, which is terrifying. If you're a tiny insect and an enormous ape traps you, of course you're going to sting. Um, and then this one actually will defend hives that it's attacking during a certain stage of its development, almost like the, uh, almost like it would its nest. But those are the only real three times you ever would be stung. I saw one in Taiwan once on a run, and it just sort of flew by. And, you know, I don't even think it
3: knew I was there. Have you been warning other entomologists and, well, just the scientific community in general to take action before these hornets get established in the U.S.? I mean, is that something that's worth doing? Or do you say, look, uh, they don't bother us?
7: No, I think we're going to assume that it's worth doing, partly because it's really difficult to predict how a species will impact an ecosystem when it's new. You know, in in its native range, these are actually a really important part of the ecosystem. They help control other insect populations. Uh, In some places, they're even of conservation concern because of the loss of forested habitat. Uh, But here, who knows? They might displace all of our native yellow jackets. They might just fit in without really doing anything. They might become a perennial bee problem. We just have no way of knowing. And the cheapest and most effective way to deal with that is to try and keep it from being a
3: problem at all, i.e. don't let them establish. I've heard from people who keep bees that they're actually worried about these murder hornets uh, wiping out honeybees in North America. Is that a real threat? This species of hornet is a definite
7: pest to commercial honeybees or, or to domesticated honeybees. How much of a threat, we don't yet know. We do keep bees a little bit differently here than than people that keep bees overseas. Um, so, so we are worried that our large concentrations of colonies, the enormous apiaries we have, might, um, might really be impacted by this species if it, if it becomes established. But it is important to note that honeybee populations are threatened by a whole slew of things, overuse and stress, uh, diseases, parasites, uh, environmental toxicants. Um, so so this is just one sort of drop in the bucket of all the threats that face honeybees. It's also important to remember that people still keep bees in all of the countries where this species is endemic. They just have to spend more time and money managing this pest, sometimes moving their bees around on the landscape to avoid populations, sometimes building screens, sometimes having kids stand around and smack hornets out of the air with sticks. Uh, that's probably not tenable at a large scale, but um, it's, this is not the bee apocalypse, but it definitely is something that is concerning to beekeepers.
3: Well, finally. So I'm trying to be impartial here, Chris, and attempt to see things from the point of view of the hornet. We label it an invasive species. But if these predator animals have the luck, the dumb luck, to hitch a ride halfway across the world, maybe we should call them migrants or refugees or, you know, just opportunistic critters. None of those those terms are mutually exclusive. We are
7: the ones who create these names, who create those categories, and so we are the ones, the only ones, in a position, as far as I know of, to add these values to a species, right? To say, this one's invasive, this one's just naturalized, this one's beneficial. I think the invasiveness, as I like to think about it, really comes when we can demonstrate some sort of negative impact on the environment into which they're introduced. I would say that they haven't hit that threshold yet, we, we don't have evidence that they're having real negative impacts aside from some documented uh, honeybee kills. Uh, honeybees, of course, are also an introduced species in North America. Some people would argue that they're invasive. The point is, is that we can't really tell if they will become invasive. And so that's why we're we're acting as if that's a done deal.
3: Chris Looney, thanks so very much for speaking
7: with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It's glad to be here.
2: Chris Looney is an entomologist with the Washington State Department of Agriculture, where he manages the General Entomology Laboratory, and he is helping to control the Asian giant hornet population in the United States and Canada. In Africa and India, the arrival of another kind of flying insect is causing catastrophe. They are known for breeding quickly and their capability to eat their own body weight in food every day. Hundreds of billions of desert locusts are set to start wreaking havoc on the farms in the Horn of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Researchers at the Chinese Academy of Sciences say that they have identified the pheromone that turns normally peaceful locusts into destructive swarms, and they hope to use that pheromone to stop them.
3: Neurobiology graduate student Nipun Bastur at the Rockefeller University explains the research that appeared recently in the journal Nature.
2: Nipun, I wonder if you could describe for us the behavior of locusts when they're peaceable and then compare it with the behavior when they swarm.
9: Solitary or peaceable locusts are super shy, and they tend to avoid other locusts, and they move slowly and eat very little food. So they're basically just like a grasshopper. But the swarming or gregarious locusts are really the total opposite. They are brightly colored and flashy. They're very social. They love to be in large groups. And they eat a massive amount of food.
2: Can you give us an overview of the kind of destruction that they're doing to food crops in Africa right now? And
9: I believe India as well. These locusts, they, once they form these massive swarms, there can be up to you know, 20 billion locusts in a single swarm. and that 20 billion? Yes. With a, a B? With a B. And that is, of course, an area that's three times the size of New York City. And so in total, one swarm can eat up to 50,000 tons of food in a single day.
2: Now, scientists from the Chinese Academy of Sciences have isolated the pheromone that seems to drive some of this locust behavior. Can you explain for us what it is that they've achieved?
9: The way that you get these swarming locusts is this transition. When you have a group of four to five locusts, they suddenly switch into this gregarious swarming form. And then once they're in this form, they begin to emit a pheromone that tracks more locusts. And so this group gets bigger and bigger and eventually forms a large migratory swarm. And so what the scientists have done is isolated the pheromone that, rele- that these swarms release that triggers aggregation. And then they've isolated um, the receptor in the locust that senses this pheromone. And so the scientists did this really smart experiment where they knocked out this gene using CRISPR-Cas9. And so these um, locus, mutant locus, are no longer able to detect the pheromone and they no longer are attracted to it. And so in theory, they should no longer be able to form these swarms. Did you call them mutant locus? Yep, but in this case, this is actually a, a great mutant because we can use it to If there was a way to maybe release these locusts and cause them to mate with wild locusts, maybe you could spread this gene and prevent locusts from switching into the swarming form.
2: Won't that eventually spell out doom for the locusts? Obviously that social behavior is adaptive to them. Aren't we overcompensating because then the the locusts won't be driven to eat?
9: Yeah, absolutely. That's always a worry when you think about these kinds of population control measures. But I do think, you know, you have to weigh the cost of, you know, millions of people starving versus being able to control these swarms. And I think the key is that we'll never be able to completely get rid of them, because they breed in parts of the desert that humans don't live in that we will never get to. And so the key is really just controlling them enough so that they no longer breed in areas that we grow crops in.
2: But they don't swarm in these great numbers in these billions. Every time they get together, every time this pheromone kicks in, these gigantic swarms seem to come every
9: decade or every decade and a half. Why is that? To understand that, we really have to understand how these swarms happen in the first place. And that is because of environmental conditions. And so when you have maybe one year where you have heavy rains, then you get, um, you know, a lot of plants growing. And that season, you'll have a lot of locusts growing. And if that season, you again have a heavy rainfall, you might get, um, you know, this, really massive crowding of locusts which is what drives the swarming and so climate change is definitely leading to changes in weather patterns that lead to these massive swarms around the world
2: and the locusts are being driven by their instinct I mean if you were to tell the story from the locust point of view they're just
9: trying to survive Yeah, the driving force is probably food, but the other interesting driving force is to avoid the risk of predation and to avoid the risk of cannibalism, actually. So these solitary locusts are really prone to being cannibalized by other locusts because they're so shy and they're so non-defensive. But once they form these forms, um, you can imagine that it's better to migrate somewhere new rather than be eaten by a bird or be eaten by another locust.
2: So safety in numbers from the locust point of view, but from the human point of view, a a possible menace.
9: Absolutely, a huge menace and a huge threat.
3: Nipun Bastur is a neurobiology grad student at Rockefeller University. These swarming animals are clearly capable of enormous destruction. They're also responding to environmental pressures. So, when you consider the invading Martians in the War of the Worlds, well, would your opinion change if you knew why they came to Earth? The story's author, H.G. Wells, was trained in evolutionary biology. In his tale, climate change has altered Mars. It has become, not hotter, but an inhospitable frozen desert. The Martians invaded Earth looking for resources like water that were disappearing on their home planet.
2: The humans didn't see the Martian invasion coming, which made the story suspenseful. But when we understand the factors behind today's biological migrations, food sources, climate change, loss of habitat, even global transport, can we foresee and possibly mitigate them? Coming up, what we can forecast about the when, not if arrival of novel viruses and the onset of pandemics.
0: They sort of simulate, as in, like, there's a new, unknown, you know, form of pneumonia spreading in China.
3: What we learned from pandemic war games next it's home invasions on big picture science. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The disruption caused by the coronavirus pandemic is greater than any for 100 years. But other pandemics have occurred. It's just that some are more severe than others. In 2003, the SARS pandemic claimed 800 lives worldwide, for example. Epidemics, which don't spread around the globe, are more frequent. But all major infectious events have the same origin. The spillover of an animal virus or a bacteria Into humans.
2: We've long understood what conditions trigger outbreaks contact with wild animals, often preceded by the clearing of or incursion into their natural habitat, which exposes humans to them and their viruses, the touching or eating of infected domestic animals. Throw in a sophisticated global transportation network and a bit of infectious biology that was there can easily move here.
3: In fact, this is such established wisdom that for two decades, scientists and government officials in the U.S. and elsewhere have conducted pandemic war games to predict how an outbreak unfolds. These games belie the idea that no one could have foreseen the arrival of a novel virus or what would happen next.
2: Reporter Amy Maxman and her colleague call these simulations games without frontiers in their expository piece in the journal Nature. Whether it's a weaponized smallpox or a novel respiratory virus, the names of these pandemic simulations capture the seriousness of the task. Operation Dark Winter, Atlantic Storm, Crimson Contagion, Event 201, and Clade X. Some conducted as recently as 2019. Amy Maxman joins us to give us the takeaways from these real life emergency drills.
3: Amy, let's get to the idea here. We're talking about a pandemic simulation, you know, but it's basically a war game, right? War games have been around for a very long time. I don't imagine you're doing that with a pandemic simulation.
0: Yeah, but they're similar. They kind of got a, a cue from war games. The idea is that you know there's a group of biosecurity researchers and they looked at the way pandemics or epidemics in the past have played out and they sort of simulate as in like there's a new unknown, you know, form of pneumonia spreading in China. People who are watching the simulation get to discuss what
3: they're going to do next. Okay, so it's actually done with people. That's how it's gamed out. It isn't that you're using computer models, mathematical models, anything like that.
0: Yeah, that's an important distinction. I think some people hear simulation and they think about modeling. And that's sort of a different exercise, a model The ones we're used to hearing about in this pandemic, for example, are usually like sort of a mathematical thing that's done to get to an answer like um, This is how many people die under this scenario. These aren't really like that. These are Sort of more like fire alarm type exercises where the point is to get people in the room and generally this is some collection of, you know, politicians and other sort of people who might be influential in these situations to get them all together have to sort
3: of reenact what they're going to do when they hear of certain problems. Okay. Well, let's consider a specific event. It's called Event 201, which of course begs the question, what were the first 200 events? But anyhow, and and this was less than, than a year ago. This was in October of 2019. What was Event 201?
0: So that one's really interesting. They called it Event 201 because the biosecurity people who were doing it figured out that there was, you know, maybe around 200 epidemics emerging a year, and these can be very small. And this was, one of them is going to be the big one, the pandemic. And in that one, it's kind of started out small, you know, in the first newscast, there's this novel coronavirus. It's emerged in Brazil, and it seems like it came from bats, and it went to pigs, and then it went to pig farmers. And then, you know, some of the farmers, they might have traveled, they made it to a large city within Brazil where there's an international airport. And next thing you know, we're learning there's cases popping up in the US and Portugal and China. And then within 18 months, the coronavirus had been in in almost every country in the world.
3: And was there any estimate of the damage caused by the pandemic? I mean, you know, how many people die, how many people get infected?
0: Yeah, so I think at the end, they say there are 65 million people dead. And they also stress that the economy, the global economy is in freefall, trust in major institutions is at an all time low, trust in the media is at a huge low. So these are kind of the outcomes they talk about.
3: That sounds like a fairly somber a development that, you know, this starts in Brazil. It, it's very local. It seems unimportant. And the next thing you know, it's all around the world. How did the people who were participating react to that somber assessment?
0: People were really shaken. There was a lot of worry. You know, I know that um, some of the policymakers in the room were saying we really need to do something about this, you know, and then there's a lot of discussion of what are the things that we want to do to prevent this outcome?
3: So, you know, this was done, as I say, just before the coronavirus pandemic actually began to take hold in China. So here you have a crystal ball, as it were, into what can happen. It's really reasonably dark. It doesn't sound good. And yet, was this actually listened to? Did anybody pay attention to this simulation when the actual pandemic began? This is sort of the big reckoning that's sort of happening in this field right
0: now. I mean, after these simulations probably started around, you know, 2001, I think that's one of the early ones. A few times after these, there were measures to, say, stockpile vaccines for things like smallpox or anthrax. There's been some funding for um, development of vaccines or, you know, an improvement of the influenza vaccine. So those sort of measures were taken. But other things that were recommended, like making sure that there's an office that would be in charge of a pandemic response or sustained funding for the public health system in the US. Those kind of things were really never boosted through these simulations. And then once, you know, once the outbreak began in January, towards the end of it, some of the people from this community started writing op-eds. They were writing tweets saying, hey, listen, we've gone through this before. Here's the steps. Here are all the things we really need to do. Um, But that didn't really make it to the highest level in the U.S.
3: Well, there have been a couple of other simulations. Maybe we could briefly touch on those. One was called Clade X in 2018. And then in 2019, Crimson Contagion, which uh, certainly sounds like either something you see at the beach that you'd rather not see or or just a military uh, exercise of NATO. Maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about those and how they were different from uh, Event 201.
0: Yeah, well, so CladeX is named after sort of its mysterious origins. The idea is it's sort of a clade being sort of a group of organisms or genomic sequences that are related. Um, So in the beginning, the players really didn't know what it was. So the idea is this group of people is taken by surprise by a completely unknown virus. It turns out later we find out that it's been engineered in a lab, but we don't know that for a long time.
3: Okay, but the point was that you didn't know much about the biology of Cladex.
0: You don't know the biology of Cladex. So that was a, what do you do when it's completely mysterious with the current virus? We know it's a coronavirus. We know it's very close to the virus that causes SARS. So we can think about, okay, well, some of the drugs for SARS work for this pathogen. Cladex, it's a complete mystery. None of those sort of, you know, initial clues are there. A lot of the biosecurity field, now remember, they're focused on two things. One, What's it like to have a virus that emerges from nature that was unknown? And what's it like to have one that's engineered in a lab and is introduced intentionally? I think there has been a little bit more focus on the latter, which is probably a mistake. I think it's a mistake we're realizing because there's so many viruses that spill over from nature all the time. I mean, I've reported on Ebola a number of times. It's, it's spilled over 11 times in the Congo alone. So there has been a mistake where, you know, I think the US has put a little bit too much emphasis on the war side of it and not enough on the, the nature side.
3: Now Crimson Contagion, that was actually the most recent simulation. Tell me what the difference was with Crimson Contagion, what the idea was and uh, you know who was involved and who got the information?
0: So with Crimson Contagion, that one is very focused on the US and it occurred with a lot of people in the US Congress. It was led by Alex Azar who heads HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, And in that one, there's some tourists returning from China and they land in Chicago and they're carrying a novel respiratory virus that turns out to be a form of influenza. In this one, a number of issues come up. One of them is that there's not enough protective equipment, hospitals run out of that, there's not enough medical devices like ventilators, there's not enough masks. Um, There's a lot of confusion about who's supposed to be leading the response you know, between different federal agencies. There's conflict between the federal government and states as far as, you know, who's taking control here. I read through a lot of reports done after these simulations that were conducted and during them and afterwards. There are so many things down to debates about in-person versus mail-in voting. Those came up, you know, uh, friction between states and federal governments that came up in a lot of simulations, misinformation campaigns. You know, most of the things that they sort of predicted have come true. And I should say, this isn't a pure prediction exercise. They're really not there to say how many people are going to die, because that kind of varies based on how contagious is the pathogen, what do countries do to stop it. But the kind of problems that come up are exactly the kind of problems that we see now.
3: Well, finally, Amy, based on your research, you've looked into this, do these simulations actually from a pragmatic point of view, help us prepare for pandemics. One,
0: one region that people brought up a lot when I was reporting this story was Taiwan. Taiwan has run simulations very effectively for a number of years, ever since they had SARS. And what they would do is they would involve the government as well as businesses and their public health system and do a nationwide sort of simulation and do this every single year and make sure that if there were leaky spots, they'd catch them and they've done exceptionally well. Uh, they're very close to mainland China, and they've managed to have very few deaths. I think it was you know, below a dozen when I looked last. But I think there is a lot of reckoning in the field about how to go forward from here. And I think one thing that everybody seemed to agree on is there's really no need for a simulation now in the years to come because we can just do kind of analyses of what happened during this
2: pandemic.
3: Amy Maxman, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
2: Thanks. Amy Maxman is a reporter for the journal Nature. Well, so the big picture of this show about invasions. While often we feel at the mercy of nature, we know that it can throw us a curveball, we are not entirely helpless. We do know something about the conditions that drive invasions, whether they be insect or viral. And a changing climate is what drove H.G. Wells Martians to seek out another place to live. But there's more a twist.
3: Yeah, H.G. Wells really was not writing science fiction, although he's revered as a science fiction writer, but he was writing about the society that he knew, 19th century Britain, the society that had developed the Industrial Revolution. And it was a society that had so much technology that they had an unstoppable ability to impose their will on other societies simply because they could going forth to claim the resources of another world without understanding its, well, its biota. Who was living there already? And in the end, the Martians were ignorant of and defenseless against the common cold a virus.
2: Now, we'd like to give some thanks to those behind the scenes of this show. Thank you to the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, who make this show possible. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bowes Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the atmospheres of our planet and that of others. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
2: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Home Invasions.
4: Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful
1: action.